Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Why Football Happens podcast reaction special from Euro 2020. This is a Sunday evening, so we've just had Belgium versus Portugal. We had the Dutch against the Czechs earlier, and on Saturday we had Wales against Denmark and Italy against Austria. But Stephen, we'll crack right on with the game that's just finished, Belgium versus Portugal. I was expecting a little bit more out of this one, I've got to be honest. Um, Belgium probably made the least errors out of both teams in the game in order to get through. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it was it was one of those games where a lot happened. It was kind of getting end to end towards the end, but there was a lot happened, but there was very little quality in the game. There were so many long shots. Um, and yeah, it was just like, it's almost like neither team employs an analyst who, who tells them, yeah, don't stop shooting every shot from long range. But yeah, it's just a weird game. It was. And um, the ramifications of what happened at the end with, with Hazard limping off, as he's done five, about five or six times this year. But obviously, we need to see how serious that was. And, and De Bruyne going off just before half time. Like, it's one of those cases where Belgium are, are, are through, but at what cost? I mean, would you really fancy them against the Italians if they were lining up with, say, Carrasco and Mertens versus Hazard and De Bruyne? It puts a full, entirely different spin on that team if that's the options available. And we've touched on it virtually every podcast that we've done this tournament that if, if De Bruyne is there, then they're a completely different proposition to when to when he's not. And obviously, again, we need to wait and see, but I think that game is Friday night, so it doesn't give him a lot of time to recover from what looked like a pretty nasty ankle injury. So, yeah, Belgium got the job done, yeah, but it could be a case of that's as far as they go just simply because of the collateral damage that they sustained in order to get there. Yeah, but we've seen from from big teams in tournaments in the past that whenever you lose your, your star player, it's kind of hard because... Um, you don't really have the same depth at international level as you do at club level now, um, where most teams are able to sort of ride out a big injury. Um, I think Hazard and De Bruyne both being missing is a big, big problem for Belgium. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting when João Felix come on that you saw uh, how much a half-fit João Felix transformed Portugal's attack, just someone that was very inventive and could just make something happen out of nothing and just loves playing in those little tight spaces that, that you need someone in an in, in international level. I thought he looked phenomenal when he came on and, and he's probably not even fully fit. And so when you think about if Portugal had had him fit and firing for the whole tournament, would they look a different team? Likewise for Belgium, if, if they don't have Hazard and De Bruyne, you don't really know where that invention's coming from. Um, their one goal today came from a 30-yard shot that was right down the throat of the keeper and faded away at the last minute a little bit. A top shot stopper like Courtois probably isn't being beaten by that. Yeah. Um, so you just think, like, I'm not sure Belgium played well. I think it was just luck. Like, they didn't have a single shot inside the box. They had, like, six shots, I think, the whole match, and all of them were outside the box. I don't know. They just didn't really seem... They didn't really seem good enough, I guess, to, to go far in this tournament, especially when you relied Hazard and De Bruyne. But that's the funny thing. We, we can sit here and, and try and analyse that game tactically all you want, right? But if you were to do 10,000 simulations of that game based on the shots and the chances, Portugal probably win more than Belgium do. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those where, in, in, in one of those one-off knockout games, there can be one minute of brilliance that settles it and maybe that that, that one moment wasn't the um could, could could very easily have been a moment in the, on the other end that could have been when Guerrero hit the post that could have been when Diaz's header which goes down Curta's throat could go literally anywhere else do you know what I mean like these these kind of fine margins 
about the sides games at this level. And it's almost like, I'm not saying it's academic to discuss it tactically, but to talk about who was the better team in a game like that, that, that the simulation of that game could, for me, have went in, in any, any number of ways, including probably all the way extra time and penalties. Yeah, and that's the thing is, um, I, I would say in, in a tournament overall, um, if you have a game like that and you get through it, it's a good thing. But if you keep putting up performances like that, you can't keep winning. Um, it, like you said, if you do like a thousand simulations, but, um, Belgium are probably hardly ever winning that match again with the same shots. Um, and so that's what I mean. If they come up against like a, an Italy or a Germany or a France uh, at some point in this tournament, they need to have something more than they had today. Um, I don't think they would get away with, with this sort of performance again. Um, they didn't really threaten the, the, the Portuguese goal at all. But it was at the end of the day, it's enough. Ultimately, all that wins matches is goals. They scored a goal, Portugal didn't. Um, I thought Andre Silva's point-blank chance at the end would go in. I thought um, Ruben Diaz, uh, once he beat his man, I thought his movement was great to lose his marker. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm a bit iffy on man marking because it's so easy to lose someone um, with elite level movement. You can just, uh, a quick double movement, you send them one way, you run the yeah. other and you've got a free header and he needed to put it just either side of the keeper. Um, but then again, Courtois is one of the best shot stoppers in this tournament. So if you've got a world-class shot stopper, um, you always have a chance. But at the other end, I do worry for them. So we reckon that Belgium got through, but they might not have enough. Talking about teams that didn't have enough, we had the Dutch um, this afternoon um, playing in Budapest against the Czechs, losing 2-0. Matthias Dilley sent off with, with uh, half an hour remaining for probably one of the most clear handball decisions you'll ever see, but yet it still managed to take the, the officials over three minutes to get there. I mean, come on, man. Um, but for you, Stephen, was this a case of the handball deciding factors, or do you think that the Dutch were in trouble anyway? Well, I think both statements are, are true. The, the Netherlands didn't really create many chances. I think they had like um, five shots, I think, the whole game, six maybe. Um, so so even if you account for the first 60 minutes, that's nowhere near enough. Um, but the shots they did create, I mean, they had enough to probably get ahead in the game. And I think Malin should have put them ahead just before the handball. And it's amazing how much that one moment just, just flipped the switch on the game. Um, if it, I think he telegraphed entirely what he was going to do. Um, it, I knew before he went to the right that to his right that that's what he was going to do, and the keeper obviously knew it as well. It was so easy to read, um, and I mentioned this the other day that his decision making when he got two v one in their first game uh, in his um, first game in the tournament, he, he ran towards his own player, which defeats the purpose of having a two v one. And I just thought that was a really weird decision, and and for him to do the same thing today, where he, he just made the decision to go to his right, and he really telegraphed what he was doing. It, it's Maybe the sign that he's not like a, an elite footballer, probably going to be one of those where he's a level below, um, but he has enough pace to, to still be a constant threat besides. Um, but yeah, it was, he disappointed me. Yeah, from, from the perspective of looking at fine margins, which we were just talking about there with the Belgium-Portugal game, you, you talk about game changers, guys that can win you matches, and you also talk about coaching decisions the decide games, and I think the Dutch were let down on both fronts today. Firstly, by Frank de Boer going with uh, with Malin and, and, and Depay and attack against a robust, physical, technically very sound Czech team that had played that way in the three group games. And this game was crying out for a, a red cross to play up front and give them a focal point to play off. 
And the fact that he didn't do that, I just find, I just find that utterly bizarre. And you couple that with the second point, which is Memphis, who, Memphis Depay is the star man. He's their um, one trump card to make things happen for them. And his performance today was just absolutely nowhere near good enough. Like I've, I've often thought over the last few months and, and longer than that, it's probably since Depay came back actually from his cruciate injury, that I'm just not of the, of the conviction that he's elite level. I think he's a level below that, as you say about Marlon. I think his decision-making is bad. I think that if you, if you want to play him as a centre-forward, he spends far too, far too many minutes of the game far too far away from the box. And he did all of those things today. And, and when the Dutch needed a guy in and around it to try and make something happen, he just, wasn't, he just didn't provide it. And I was really, truly disappointed with that performance today. And I don't think that performance suggests to me that Barcelona have bought a forward who is going to improve their team. Um, hopefully Fatih comes back from injury. Then you've got Messi, Griezmann, even even uh, Aguero uh, as, um, at his age. I think all of those are, are superior in, in, in many qualities to, to, to Depay. So I'm not really sure why it's taken this long to to, to um, for Barcelona to pull the trigger on him. Maybe they were thinking about it too much and just thinking maybe he isn't that level. And I think, yes, in, in the group stages, he did some good things, but he was playing against a team who, I, I as I said in the, in the, the round of 16, pod I thought was an upgrade from what he'd faced in the group stages and it certainly came to pass but what do you think about the Czechs overall did you, did you enjoy their performance and do you think we need to give them a bit more credit than than just criticizing the Dutch yeah I think I think people have a bad habit of um whenever they're analyzing games they they tend to look at the the favorite and then say where they went wrong rather than uh, maybe holding your hands up and saying that the the underdog got a lot of things right um Ultimately, you can only beat what, what was in front of you. Um, they, they made a, a, a Dutch team that had looked very good in the group stages, looked very ordinary. Um, I, I think it was um, it was noticeable as well that um, in the group stages, I look back and the Netherlands had the, the team ranked lowest in, in all the teams of um, North Macedonia in the group. And of the teams that went through, they had the team ranked 16th out of 16th and 14th out of 16th that escaped the group with them. So... They, they clearly had the weakest group and it, it, maybe it's just one of those things we talked about in the last pod where you, you need a challenge you need someone so that um you, you're ready for the level of games when they start going up in the knockout stages and maybe the fact that the netherlands had a really good group and it, they won 100 percent of their games and it gave them a lot of confidence but maybe they just thought that uh all their problems were solved because they looked like a team that whenever they got into trouble today they weren't sure how to solve it um and yeah, and, and that, you have to give the uh, Czechs credit for that because they they identified all of the, the problems that the Netherlands could have and exploited them. Um, Suchek was really good at uh, getting in the box um, and, and sort of attacking things when, when the ball went in. I liked how they were working little um, combinations down the sides to get crosses into the box as well. They've done very well um, making the Netherlands fullbacks look like they couldn't defend. Um, I thought Van Aanholt looked like a he didn't look like a Premier League fullback at all. I think that's probably the worst I've seen him play. And um, Dumfries, we, we've talked before about how the weakest part of his game by far is defending. Um, he, he looks good going forward. I thought he made a brilliant run today. Looked like a, a number nine, but yeah, that was amazing. To defend. That was he just amazing. makes really bad choices. He does. He and, does. Yeah. And it, the worst Sorry. one was for the second goal, where I, I don't know why, but it was very clear that Wijnaldum is never winning that ball. And for some reason, he decides to run ahead of the ball 
before he even sees what happens from the the 50-50. And it's just such a really stupid decision. I just yeah. didn't, I just never understood why he done that. Um, and yeah, it's just little things like that. I think little, like we were saying in the other game, game, intel- uh, game intelligence, things like that. Absolutely. It, it's the difference maker at the top level. Absolutely, yeah. Just, I, I actually see quite a lot of parallels with that Dutch game today versus the Italy-Austria game from, from Saturday night. And that game almost had its turning point moment in the same way that, that De Ligt was uh, red-carded when Arnautovic's goal was, was was chopped off or offside. Now, it, it was offside, but that could have been the turning point moment for the for the Italians in that game as well because they really struggled for the, the for the 15, 20 minutes in the second half up until that moment and, and, and probably for the rest of the half as well before it went to extra time. And they were they were lucky to ride those breaks and get through ultimately in the end. I don't think Italy played as bad as the Netherlands did today, but I think there were some parallels in that. There was a dodgy moment, but the Italians have been able to overcome it and the Dutch just weren't. And I think Italy might emerge from that the stronger. I think that Mancini will probably look at starting 11 now um, because I think that they looked better when Locatelli came on. I think they certainly looked better when Chiesa came on. And I, I know that the Mancini's had this very clear starting 11 that he wants to play when everyone's fit, that includes Verratti and includes either Berardi or Insigne. But I think that both Locatelli and uh, and uh, Chiesa in the last, say, 40 minutes of that game, including the extra time, have made a real case to say that they should be starting the next match. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I said in our preview podcast that um, Chiesa is a star man for me. I, I, I love Chiesa. Um, I remember watching his dad, Enrico Chiesa, play, and he, he's kind of like the, the forward that I learned how to appreciate strikers from watching. And it was just, um, it just sort of takes me back to my childhood seeing his name. And so it's, it's kind of hard not to separate out the emotion of that and, and how good actually Chiesa is. But I think he proved this season that he is actually at that level. He's, he's one of the top uh, forwards now in, in Serie A. And it's just, I, I don't understand how um, he's not, getting picked ahead of Berardi and, and, and Signia. It's not that they're not good players, but I don't think they've ever had a, um, I don't think they've ever played at the level Chiesa's at um, last season. So it, it's just a strange choice not to, to start him. And I, I, I didn't understand that. Um, and I was do saying think, on do you our... Think that some coaches, this is, this is, so there's an interesting theme emerging through this tournament where coaches at international level seem to have a level of loyalty to some players that maybe club coaches don't. So I've certainly saw it with, with the Scotland team that some guys have been rewarded for getting the team to the tournament. But ultimately, if the coach was a little bit more ruthless, that, that player or, or players might not have been playing. I think there's some cases of that in some of the other big teams as well. Do you think that's a case where Mancini is sticking his guns to some of the guys that have got them into this position? And maybe now that he's been pushed into this situation, he will eventually change it. But ultimately, he has been a bit too loyal to those guys until now. I know that's hard to say because they won their three group games um, easily in nine points out of nine. But do you think that there is a level of loyalty to some guys that, that um, coaches are rewarding to get them to the tournament, which means that they, they maybe play for a little bit longer than they should? Well, I think one of the differences between international football and club football is uh, you don't really have any time to, to train the players, um, to sort of work them to a system. You don't really have like a pre-season where you can nail down a system for like six straight weeks and then go into a season with it. So I, I think a lot of what you see is um, managers looking for combinations that work well on the pitch, like a, a fullback and a, a winger to have a good understanding and work well together or uh, midfielders that work well with, together with each other. Um, and, and like you said, bringing Verratti in 
seemed to interrupt the good thing that um, uh, Barella and Locatelli and Jorginho had in the group stages. So I think that's probably more what it is rather than, than sort of favoritism or anything like that. I think it's basically going with combinations that you see working. And, and the interesting thing is, is that Mancini didn't do that. He, he sort of found a combination that was working well in the groups and interrupted it. Um, I think Verratti's a better player individually than any of the other three. But um, uh, they looked a lot better when Locatelli came on. I think if you're going to bring Verratti into the team, it has to be instead of Jorginho. Um, I think having both of them on the pitch together, yeah. it's, it's very similar. Um, yeah, and, and you end up very one-paced. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just strange that the choices he made. The, the other thing I noticed just from watching this tournament is the death of the number 10 is really hurting international football. Because I remember watching international football at, and, and there, every team had a playmaker, like a, a guy who was brilliant between the lines that just like knit and play together and feeding the, connecting the midfield and the attack. And, and there just isn't really players like that anymore. Um, f- football's a lot more uh, about pressing and intensity. Uh, and the forwards, you have a lot more wide forwards and wingers. And it, it seems like uh, international football and, and club football's at a bit of a clash at the moment where all the players at club level are, are suited to playing one way. And then when they go to international football, it's sort of, they're trying to like get them to play in a, a different way. And it doesn't really seem to work. Um, everything just looks a little dysfunctional for a lot of teams. And it's really strange. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the only real reason that anybody will remember this match will be Chiesa's fantastic goal. Three brilliant touches, one with the face. <laughs> I think that's the first ever player that's assisted himself with his own face. But then the touch back, I mean, I'm not going to compare the goal to Dennis Bergkamp, right? Because Bergkamp's goal in 98 is one of my favourite goals ever scored. But the second touch was Bergkamp-esque in the way he put it down into the ground that it bounced back up. It was very similar to the way he took it past Ayala in 98. And then obviously he smashed it in the corner. One of the goals of the tournament for me so far to take where when that ball was in the air for it to be in the net three seconds later is is something special. So um, we want to see more guys like he is in the tournament. I, I think that's... I think that's what frustrated me about Portugal tonight. They've got so much attacking talent. And, and I know it's difficult to squeeze all of them onto the pitch at the same time. But it feels as if we haven't really seen the best of any of them, bar Ronaldo and, and, and Spells. Anyway, let's let's focus on the final um, round of 16 match that's been so far, which was an absolute Danish destruction of the Welsh uh, in Amsterdam, 4-0. And um, I don't think anybody, even the most staunch Welshmen, could deny that, that, that Belgium, sorry, Denmark were by far the better team here. And in fact, could be finding their gear at just the right time on the right side of the draw in this tournament. Yeah, um, I, I kind of felt sorry for Wales uh, in the end. Um, I actually thought they started the brighter of the two teams um, and, and sort of De- Denmark sort of took a while to get going. But once they found their groove and once they worked out how to open up Wales, they just tore them to pieces. Um, the, the goals were kind of strange as well. Uh, like um, it, the goals sort of came against the run of play, the first goal. And then after that, Wales just sort of collapsed, I guess, and, and, and knew they were out of the game. Yeah. Um, th- I thought the red card was really harsh. It was. Uh, didn't change the result, but I just thought it was really harsh. He, he was like frustrated. And you see those sort of uh, tackles all the time in the Premier League where someone's just trying to bring someone down who's got away from them. And it's always a yellow card. And, and to see a red card coming for it is harsh. Uh, and I also, 
I thought the fourth goal was offside. I haven't seen a good replay of it still, um, but the fourth goal just looked really offside. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I've got that totally wrong, but yeah, it's just. Um, it was, I also thought all of Denmark's best chances they they didn't score from, and, and they sort of scored from, for, from sort of smaller, I guess smaller xG chances. Would yeah. Be the word. Yeah. I, I think that. Um... I think that everything we said about Wales pre-tournament, we got 100% right. I don't think they are a very good side at all. But one or two moments from big players can get you through. But I think we were surprised by how Turkey, how bad Turkey were. And if Turkey were at any level, anywhere near the expectation of them, not just from this pod, but from most others, then I think they would have got through past Wales quite easily. But obviously that didn't happen. And I, I, I think we'll struggle to see a weaker round of 16 performance than Wales yesterday and even in these four remaining games I thought that they were pretty abject pretty amateurish at times and I think that's reflected in, in their coach who seems like a, a very a very nice fella um, but he has very little managerial experience whatsoever and I think a small tactical shift in the first half with, with the Danes and pushing Christensen forward he had he had absolutely no answer to it and um, that was ultimately enough to decide the game but the interesting thing for me for the Danes is they've got a little bit of strength and depth. Like I was a big Dolberg fan when he was at Ajax, but I, used to, I went to see him there a few times. And I know he's not been doing it in Nice, but the guy's had a pretty tough year there. He's, he's had COVID, I think, at least once. And um, there's a couple of other dressing room incidents that have happened there which have stopped him um, getting his season off the ground. But that guy's got skills. He's a good I read player. that he, I read that his Rolex got stolen from his locker room by a youth team player. Yep. Yeah, that was at the start of this season, yeah. Um, That's crazy. So, and they ended up sacking the, the, the guy for it. They did, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's it's funny because, like, Poulsen obviously be picking up that hamstring injury. And again, it's not clear how, how bad the injury is for Poulsen. But you've got, to be, you've got to be disappointed if you're Dolberg and you score two goals in a round of 16 game at a tournament and you don't get to start in the next one. It'd be really unfortunate if that was the case. And in fact, I, th- I felt the balance between him and Braithwaite was maybe a little bit better than it was between Poulsen and um, and Braithwaite because Braithwaite does like to drop into wide areas and as we've discussed about Poulsen previously, he's not really a goal scorer, but he prefers to stay on the periphery of the game and drop wide and try and create for other people and try and create space a la Roberto Firmino. So I think actually having the focal point of Dolberg in the middle made a difference to Belgium. I keep calling them Belgium, Denmark. And uh, I think that... Um, I think Dolberg should start the next match and, and see how it goes because that, that could be a real interesting cl- uh, clash of styles. And for the same reason that I think Vekost should have started for the Dutch today, Dolberg's probably got to start against the Czechs in the next one because he's a phys- he's a more of a physical presence than than, than Poulsen is. And he'll give Den- Denmark that option to go into feet and allow him to hold it up and potentially put uh, high balls into the area that, that Poulsen probably won't give them. So um, that's becoming an, a really interesting matchup, that one now. I mean, I wouldn't have begged you for that game pre-tournament but the more I've watched these two teams in the tournament, I actually, that one is not as much of a turn-off as I thought it might be. It could be a really good game, that. So we'll wait and see. Anyway, what's your, what's your big takeaway from, from these four matches? Any kind of big learnings or do we think that we've still got the, the most interesting games to come? I, I, would, I would guess we could say the draw is really opening up for either England or Germany. If you wanted to kind of say that those two are still the big fish on that side of the draw, that game takes on even more importance now, would you say? Yeah, it, it's, it's funny you mention England. I was actually thinking today um, that maybe the reason England have an advantage over a lot of the other teams is um, that, that the players England have don't really make a lot of mistakes. Like sometimes you see Pickford making goalkeeping errors and 
Uh, I guess Maguire has the odd mistake in him sometimes for Manchester United, but but there's sort of few and far between. But the, the thing I'm noticing a lot is in, in the knockout stages is um, mistakes are brutally capitalised on. And once you're behind, you're probably done. And and that's, I thought, if Italy had conceded the first goal yesterday, I thought they were done. Uh, didn't see him coming back from it. And so when that when Arnautovic scored, I was sure, I was like, oh, Italy are in big trouble here. And it was the same in the, the Denmark-Wales match. The, the first two goals, the first goal you can... Um, it's basically a counter-attack and, and a long-range shot and perfectly put in the corner. But the second one's like a, a, a bad clearance that falls for Dolberg. And there was probably a foul in the build-up as well. Yeah. But just little things like that. And if it goes against you, you're done. And and tonight it was the same thing, that mistake from Malin in the 1v1 and then the mistake from Delit at the other end. And that's it. Netherlands are done. And and it just seems to be the recurring trend in the tournament. And England have players that probably aren't going to make a lot of mistakes they're, they're like a very weird to say it for about an england team but they're very efficient yeah they're not very nice to watch they're they're sort of really ugly to watch to be honest with you um but it's, it's funny you matches. say that Stephen. It's, it's funny you say that because i think that the, the group stage um this this 24 teams down to 16 group stage has kind of warped people's uh, ideas of what international football is or what how attacking international football can be. And the reason why I say that is when you've got four groups of four, two go through, two go out, every game matters. Every moment matters in every game because if you lose, you're, you're already up against it. But with this schedule, teams and players know that if it doesn't really work out for them in that game, don't worry, there's still two games to come. And it's allowing teams to play with a bit more of an openness and a freedom that they might not necessarily would under a, a, a normal group format. But now that we're into the knockout stages, we're seeing teams revert a bit more to type and be ultra cautious because they know, like you've just said, one mistake and it's all over. And they fought so hard to get to this point that they don't want to, to go out by being the guy who's made that mistake. Like, De Ligt is already getting chastised in the Dutch press tonight for his mistake like that'll be how this, how this tournament is remembered do you know what I mean like, the Dutch were excellent in the group stages no one will remember that the only thing they'll remember is the next time ball put them out so I think we're going to see another four cautious games over the next couple of days because and uh, the juxtaposition between the freedom of the group stages where you have to be really unlucky to go out if you're a good team versus now we're in the serious business of it's knockout football I think that's seen what being reflected in, in what we're seeing here with the games being ultra ultra tight yeah, the, the two things I remember I, I said in the the last podcast was I, I expect Germany might actually be the defensive team in the next match simply because it's their best way to solve the problem of, of uh, Raheem Sterling. And every team that they've played so far has got him behind them and made them look really stupid. Um, and that has to be a worry for, for Germany and in, in how they deal with Raheem Sterling. And I just reckon if they, if they sit back and try to bring... Uh, England onto them and then they can use the same tactic of having Nabri or Werner or Sané in behind. I just have a, a gut feeling that that's what Germany will do uh, in the next match. Um, and the other thing I remember predicting is that we'd, we'd see a team, a small team, get very, very far in the competition um, and probably beat a couple of big sides. And it is that thing of, of basically pragmatism and, and sort of not taking any risks and, and being dull uh, it's actually really effective in international football. Greece won a tournament with it. Um, and we, we sort of all dismiss England just because watching them is really boring and we expect a lot more, but ultimately it's, it, it's effective and it's efficient. 
And so it'll be very interesting to see who goes through out of that match. And, and it might end up actually deciding who wins the whole tournament. Oh, which is I, awful. I hope not. <laughs> took it's the words, awful to admit. <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, that's good, mate. We'll, we'll be back tomorrow night, guys, Monday evening, um, to, to discuss tomorrow's two round of 16 games. But that's all for now. Thanks.